preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Well, I don't think that... um any of us were prepared for the news that we received this week. Uh, as we all know, by now, Janice Lee, one of the founding members of our church, unexpectedly went home to be with the Lord, and none of us could have anticipated that. On Thursday of last week, she suffered a stroke while she was at a normally scheduled doctor's visit, and by Sunday, she experienced a bleeding on her brain that eventually took her life. But even though it was an aneurysm that eventually took Janice's life from a medical perspective, we understand that it was God who ultimately received Janice's life from a biblical perspective. As Job 1.21 says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's the Lord who has taken Janice away and received her unto himself, and right now she's at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8 says, we are of good courage. I say and prefer, prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And blessed be the name of the Lord, right? We prefer to be at home with the Lord. But none of us were expecting that it would be this soon. It was just two weeks ago that Janice was sitting at a reception table, a registration table, serving the kids who attended our BBC kids camp. Uh, The Kids Camp was one of the ministries that Janice and and Kevin faithfully served in for the last number of years, and and this year was no different. Uh, She came to serve alongside of her husband, Kevin, and as she typically did, she put a smile on the faces of everybody who was around her with her quick-witted humor, and uh, if you've ever spent time with Janice, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, She was hilarious. I'd I'd share some of the jokes right now, but I'll, I'll save it for later. But she had no idea how funny she was until you really got to know her. And I remember on, on Saturday, uh, which was the, only a day before the bleeding in her brain was detected, that she was in a hospital cutting up with, with Kevin. You know, we had no idea what was coming the next day, but uh, you know, she was in there having a, having a good time, just, just laughing and, and joking. But uh, we knew that, that God knows, right? Even though we didn't know what was coming, we know that God knows. And from God's perspective, it was all part of his perfect plan. He knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, verse 10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God knew when Janice's days were fulfilled, and God already had it written in his book. Psalm 139, verse 16 says, In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. None of this caught God off guard. And it was a comfort to hear Janice speak about her confidence in the, the Lord, her testimony that she was not afraid. And those were some of the last words that I heard Janice speak before she went home to be with the Lord. And uh, we can praise the Lord that Janice is home now. She's home. 
Janice was a, a hidden gem, and as I heard more of the stories from her family this week, it struck me that Janice was really a wonderful example of the quiet strength and hidden beauty that we find in 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, you can turn there if uh, you have your Bibles with you, 1 Peter chapter 3. And this just gives us an opportunity to honor her life, learn from her example, and see the truth and power of God's Word on display, which we've seen in our in God's servant, Janice Lee. So take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter 3, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 6. It says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy woman also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this day as we always do. As we approach your word, Father, asking for you to give us help. Help us to understand what we read here. Give us insight. And Father, give us a submissive heart to what we read. Grant us humility to hear what our God says to his church, to his people. And Father, that you would use me as a weak instrument, Lord, to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to remind you of the context again, First uh, Peter is written to a group of persecuted Christians who Peter refers to as aliens or strangers. Back in chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter uses the, the Greek term par epidemos. It's a word that means a sojourner, a traveler, someone who resides in a strange land, a land that doesn't belong to them. And as we've said before, we're living in a, a world that's filled with unbelievers and we're the world's true aliens. We're, we're like what Jesus says in John 15 in verse 9 where he says, you're not of this world. We, we don't fit in. We're the odd ones out. We're like the square pegs in the round hole. And because Christians don't fit in, we can experience all kinds of injustice, uh, whether we're slandered or falsely accused or insulted or harshly treated or we experience acts of evil against us. And that's what the believers that Peter is writing to were dealing with. They're experiencing this at the time that Peter is writing to them. They're living in an evil and unbelieving society that turned against them. And the opposition against them became so great that even the government would eventually pick up the sword against the Christians. The Roman emperor or Caesar at this time was a man by the name of Nero. And in 64 AD, under this Caesar, Rome experienced one of the worst fires in history. And even when the fire was put out in one place, it started in another location. And while Rome burned, Nero was entertaining himself. One historian writes that he was believed to have started the fires and in this way to have sought for the glory of building a new city. And in fact, Nero could not by any means, he tried to escape from the charge that he had caused the fires by his own orders. And therefore he turned the accusation, when the accusation went and turned from himself, he looked to the scapegoats, he looked to the Christians. He could blame it on the Christians 
But here's the question. Why did he think he could turn the accusation against the Christians? Why were they the scapegoat? Why did he pick them? Why did he think his plans would work? It's because the Christians were already hated and held in suspicion. That's why. And the fire that we read about in history in AD 64 took place either just before or just after the writing of 1 Peter. So this is the kind of environment that Peter is writing to. It's an environment where Christians are already held under suspicion and are an easy target for accusation. And believe it or not, uh, we're moving closer to that kind of time even in our own nation. Christians were experiencing opposition from every sector of society. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he spoke of the Christians' relationship to unbelieving an unbelieving world that slandered them. It says they slander you as evildoers, chapter 2 and verse 12. In chapter 2, verse 13 and 17, he addresses how Christians are to relate to an unbelieving government, which was increasingly hostile and foolish. And in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, Peter addresses the relationship between Christians and their unbelieving masters, who are sometimes harsh and unreasonable. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, he turns his attention to the marriage relationship, because even there we can face opposition to the Christian message. And whether we're talking about our response to an unbelieving society or government or master or spouse, the, the scriptures give us the principles that we can apply in each and every situation. And that's what 1 Peter 3 reminds us of at the very beginning of the chapter. 1 Peter chapter 3 and, and verse 1, it starts out with these words, in the same way. What, what does that mean? In the same way. He means that in the same way that You've been instructed how to respond to an unbelieving society, an unbelieving government, an unbelieving master. You can apply those same principles in response to an unbelieving spouse in the same way. So, so if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, what does quiet strength and hidden beauty of a godly wife have to do with me, which should have been the title behind me, but it, it didn't get, get on the, I didn't get it on the board, okay? It's, it's my fault. But the, the title of the message is The Quiet Strength and Hidden Beauty of a Godly Wife, okay? The Quiet Strength and Hidden Beauty of a Godly Wife. And if you're, you're sitting here and thinking, you know, what does the quiet strength and hidden beauty of a godly wife have to do with me? It's, it's got more to do with you than you think. <laughs> because there's principles that we learn here that we can apply in every situation. Whether you're male or female, whether you're married or unmarried, whether you're soon to be married or never to be married, there are broad principles here that we can all learn from. Principles about a godly character, about respectful behavior, about the inner spiritual life, about our hope and trust in the Lord. There's, there's principles here that we can apply in various situations and when we find ourselves in a situation where we have to respond to an authority in the same way. In the same way, you can apply these principles to your particular situation, whether you have the specific command to submit to, an hus to a husband or not. And we know that we can apply these principles in a general way because in verse 7, Peter turns his attention to the husbands and says, you husbands, in the same way, in the same way. The husband's not commanded to submit to the wife, but he is commanded to apply the same principles in his relationship with his wife as he submits to Christ. So even the husband can learn something from what we learn here. But there's two specific commands that Peter gives to the believing wife of an unbelieving spouse. And the first command is to be submissive. That's what we find in verse 1. Be submissive, which can win over a husband even without a word. And that's what I call quiet strength. 
uh, a submissive attitude that can win over a spouse, quiet strength. And the second command is to adorn yourself. We find that in verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external, but in verse 4, let it be the hidden person of the heart. That's what I call hidden beauty. Quiet strength and hidden beauty of a godly wife, which Peter says in verse 4 is precious in the sight of God. And it's a great reminder to all of us that you can't judge a book just by the cover. Just not by how loud a person is, how much a person is seen. That doesn't determine where strength is found or where beauty is found. You can't judge a book just by the cover. You can't determine the value of a person's life based on how much they were heard or how much they were seen. And Scripture often exalts people who were rarely heard and hardly seen. We think about people like, like Joseph, who was sold into slavery and then thrown into prison. But his life was precious in the sight of God, and he was elevated to the second place of command in the kingdom of Egypt. We think about Moses, who said in Exodus 4, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in the time past, but the Lord used Moses to deliver his greatest messages, led his people out of Egypt, and he wrote the first five books of the Bible. You know, a man who says, I'm not eloquent in speech, he wrote five books of the Bible. We think about David, who was the last born son of Jesse, left to tend the sheep. His father never even thought of bringing him out when Samuel came to his house to present him as a possible choice for the king. It's like, you know, leave him out in the field with the sheep. I'm not even going to present him. You know, he's not interested in that one. But again, this is the one that the Lord had chosen. And he says to Samuel, arise and anoint him for this is he. And prior to the formal ministry of Jesus Christ, Jesus was rarely heard or seen. When Jesus started to speak in his hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, in verse 22, it says that all who were there were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? It's like we've, we've never seen this before. Like, like is this the same guy that, that I'm, is, it, it's the same guy, right? This is Joseph's son? How, how does he now speak with such words of wisdom? Matthew 13, 54, where did this man get this wisdom? They hadn't heard of it or seen it before. They were judging the book by the, by the cover, but you can't determine value in that way. And the same is true for a godly wife. So let's take a look at a godly wife's quiet strength, a godly wife's quiet strength. Look again at uh, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. That word uh, submissive, we've already seen that in a, a previous context already in 1 Peter. It's used over in 1 Peter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And there it's an imperative, it's a command. And the force of that command carries throughout the rest of the passage, chapter 2 and verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive. That word uh, submit is from the, the Greek word hupotasso, uh, a rare word. Actually, not a rare word. It's a, a common word throughout the, the New Testament. It comes from two Greek words, hupa, which means under or below, and tasso, which is a word that means to, to order, to station. So it's to, to station under, to, to place in rank underneath. It's essentially a word that means to fall in line, to fall in rank, to fall in order. It's a word that was frequently used in secular uh, Greek for political and military subjection. 
And if you know anything about the military, you know all about rank and order of command, chain of command, you know, who answers to who. And in the marriage relationship, the godly wife answers to the husband and defers to his authority. And before you respond to that, ladies, just keep in mind that, number one, what we're talking about is precious in the sight of God. Precious in the sight of God. That word for for precious is the word for costly. It's found in in verse 4. The the, the preciousness in the sight of God. Uh, Palu teles, it's a a word that means very costly or valuable. It It was a word that was used for costly stones, the stones that decorated Solomon's temple, 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 2. It was used for the precious jewels that we find in the book of, of Proverbs, chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 31. It was used of fine gold, the preciousness of fine gold, Job 31 and verse 24. It was also the same word that was used for the costly perfume that was poured out on Jesus' feet in Mark chapter 14 and verse 3. And also, it was the same word that was used to translate the Hebrew word for the costly cornerstone that's laid in Zion in Isaiah 28 and verse 16, which was a reference to Christ himself. The preciousness of a submissive wife is used, uses the same term for the preciousness of the costly cornerstone. And Jesus was precious in the sight of God, the precious stone that the builders rejected. So when we toss out this idea of submission, as if it's some kind of dirty word, we're actually rejecting what God himself has chosen and despising what God himself calls precious. So before you respond to this word submission, it's like, oh, I don't want anything to do with that word submission. Understand that you're throwing out what God himself calls precious. I consider that precious. Before you respond to this word, you also need to keep in mind that submission is not limited to the marriage relationship. You know, sometimes ladies can think about submission as if they're the only ones who receive that command, as if the men don't have anyone that they have to submit to. You know, you know, it must be nice not to have anybody to listen to. You know, it must be nice, it must be nice, right? It's nice not to have anybody that you have to listen to. But that's not true. We've just learned that citizens have to submit to governments, slaves submit to, submit to masters, children submit to parents, church members submit to elders, and all of us submit to God. Submission is carried over into like every area of life. So 1 Peter 2.13 says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as to one in authority or the governors that's sent by him. Every level of authority comes with its own set of responsibilities. So, so there's, there's one that you have to give deference to. And for those that just want the authority, There's also a responsibility that comes with the authority as well. The the buck has to stop somewhere, right? (laughs) And for for the people who say that, oh, I want the authority, there's also a higher level of responsibility and accountability to that authority. When, When God came to the garden, he didn't say, hey, Eve, where are you? He says, Adam, where are you? This This is your responsibility, Adam. It was through Adam that sin was passed on to the human race. Death reigned because of Adam. It's Adam. It's in Adam that all die. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Adam was responsible for this. I was even thinking about, a, a, there's a, a, a recent a documentary that I saw on a, a guy who's, who owned this company, and 
he realized that all the money ran out and now it's all fell on him to tell all of his employees that, you know, you're without a job. Had to pull his daughters out of school, sell his house. I mean, had the authority, had the position, but the buck stopped somewhere. And it was his responsibility on his shoulders that he had to get rid of his employees and turn over the keys to his property. That comes with authority. And some people just want the, the position, but not the responsibility. I was talking to one guy during a, our evangelism week, and you know, he's talking about his, his daughters and you know, how they, they didn't want to listen. And he said he finally had to say, well, if, if, uh, if uh, you think you're grown, then go get your own. <laughs> if, if you want the, the authority, you, know, you also have to take along the responsibility. You don't want to listen. There's the responsibility that comes along with that. But there's always somebody to answer to, whether that's the people above you or whether you have to answer for the people below you. There's always somebody to answer to. Nancy Lee DeMoss, now Wolgamuth in her book, Lies Women Believe, says, at the core of fallen human nature, and I believe at the heart of feminist ideology, is a problem with authority. We simply don't want anyone telling us what to do. We want to run our own lives and make our own decisions. Toddlers don't want to be told not to touch an item. Teenagers don't want to be told what time to be in at night. Adults don't want us telling, uh, want anybody telling us we can't drive more, more than 35 miles an hour on the back roads or that we have to wear a seatbelt. So the problem with submission is not just a female problem, it's a universal problem. We all have a problem with it, right? But when we humbly submit ourselves to that authority, to right authority, the Bible says that's precious in the sight of God. It's precious in the sight of God. And finally, before you respond to this word submission, keep in mind that the same qualifications that apply to submission in other areas apply to submission in this area. It's submission in the same way, which means that we're not called to submit to sin, but only to what is right. And the godly woman is only called to do what is chaste, what is respectful, and what is right. And again, uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss gives us some helpful categories here. She says, submission does not mean that the wife is inferior to her husband. The responsibility of a, a wife to submit to her husband's authority doesn't make her any less valuable or significant than her husband. Actually, you find in one of the traditional Jewish prayers that's found in the Talmud that it teaches the men at the beginning of the day in their daily routine prayers to say this, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. That was one of the prayers that they would, they would pray. One version of the prayer expands on that same theme and says, Thank you, God, who's created me a human and not a beast, a man and not a woman, an Israelite and not a Gentile, circumcised and not uncircumcised, free and not a slave. It's one of the ways that women have been looked at. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says the wife, says the law is in all things inferior to the husband, for God has given the power to the husband. But that's not what submission means. The Bible lets us know that we're equally created in the image of, of God. Actually, in Galatians chapter 3, it talks about how before the cross that we're all the same before the cross. Submission does not equal inferiority. Both man and, and women are equal in the sight of God in that sense. And it's obvious when you look at the other categories of submission that we're not talking about superiority versus inferiority. The governing authorities are not more valuable than you. Your, your employer is not more valuable than you. And neither is a husband more valuable than a wife. Both created in the image of God. Both have equal value before God. Number two, submission does not mean that the husband is permitted to be harsh or dictatorial to his wife. Husbands are commanded to love 
their wives as they love themselves in selfless, sacrificing way as the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, laid down his life for the sheep. And if you have a husband who's given to anger or any kind of abuse, submission does not cover for him. Proverbs 19 verse 19 says, a man of great anger will bear the penalty for if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. What does that mean? You let him pay the penalty. (laughs) You let him pay the penalty for his actions, whether that's church discipline or legal action against him. You don't cover for somebody who's abusive. Number three, submission does not mean that a wife is not to provide input or express her opinions. God created the woman to be a suitable helper. She's given to the man to help him. Why? Because the man needs help, right? Man needs some help. Don't laugh too, too long out there. You might get yourself in trouble. The man needs some help. He needs, he needs the input. He needs the insight of his wife to various situations. It means, uh, but it also means that once a wife graciously and humbly expresses her heart on a matter, if the husband chooses to act contrary to her counsel, she also needs to be willing to step back and, and let God take care of the consequences, right? Trust God with the consequences of her husband's decision. You know, don't try to reach over and let me grab the wheel. You know, I told you to turn, I said turn right. You know, grab the wheel and take it from you. That's also not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and submission also does not mean that the husband is always right. Just most of the time. Just <laughs> that was a joke, Okay. Submission does not mean that the husband is always right. And First Peter addresses women who are called to submit to men who aren't always right. Peter says that this wife is to submit to their husbands even if some of them are disobedient to the word. And what does that mean? Turn back to chapter 2. What does it mean to be disobedient to the word? Chapter 2, look at verse 7. Hereafter, it talks about Jesus Christ being the precious cornerstone, and talking about us as those who are also built up as these spiritual living stones to be placed within this house, we have this this precious value of being connected to Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. We as living stones are built up upon Jesus Christ. So this precious value, verse 7 says, is for you, this value of being part of this living structure placed on Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, for those who disbelieve, that's the contrast, belief versus unbelief, the stone which the builders rejected, this stone, this has become the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they the unbelievers, stumble. Why? Because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. The unbelievers in this context are those who are disobedient to the word. So when we get back to chapter three, and it speaks about submitting to those, even if they're disobedient to the word, what are we talking about? We're talking about submission to an unbeliever. This is referring to a believer married to an unbeliever. How did this happen? You know, maybe the wife was converted after they were married. Maybe the wife thought she was marrying a believer and turned out to be an unbeliever. Or maybe she knew he was an unbeliever and decided to get married against her biblical convictions. And either way, she's now unequally yoked. And the next right thing to do is what Peter commands her to do here, which is to submit. And if you're here and you're single, 
You need to think soberly about your decision to marry ahead of time. Because you can choose who you give that gift of submission to. Find out now. (laughs) Take the time to, to discover that now because there's no guarantee that once you get married that you'll save your spouse. That's not the hope, that I'll get married and I'll change them, I'll fix them. No, you'll be in a fix, (laughs) thinking that you'll fix them once you get married. I've heard of one person who said that after they got married and they said, I do, he said, I'm done. You you don't get into a marriage saying, I'll I'll fix this. 1 Corinthians 7, 16 says, for how do you know a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know a husband, whether you will save your wife? But if you do find yourself with an unbelieving spouse, Peter says, Submit to them, even if they are disobedient to the word. Don't use that as an excuse to throw off their authority. Follow their lead as long as they're not persuading you to sin. And why should you do that? Look at the end of verse 1. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one. It's, it's, it's evangelistic at that point. It's not a guarantee, but it's a hope that they will be one. And what does it mean to win? It means to to see them become believers, to be gained for eternity. That's what it means to win. That word win was used of financial profit, but in this context, it's speaking about gaining souls for eternity, true riches. That's how Paul uses the word back in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 22. He says, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. That's the, the parallel there. To win is to save. And we know from the context of Scripture that Paul couldn't determine the salvation of anybody. In Romans chapter 9, he says, I wish that, that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my, my brother, and I wish I could save them. He couldn't save them, but he was used by God as the human instrument to lead people to salvation. And Peter says that a husband can be one, can be led to salvation without a word. And what does Peter mean by that? It's obvious that uh, a husband has to hear the word, so it's not that they're saved just by your example alone. You know, Peter taught earlier that we're saved by the living and enduring word of God, so a husband has to hear the word. But that doesn't mean that a wife needs to set up a pulpit, you know, in the kitchen and preach a sermon before dinner every night, you know, and have an altar call before dessert, you know, sing just as I am a couple times until he just pleads for mercy and gets saved every night. That's, that's not what a wife is supposed to do. You know, it's not through her, her constant speaking. What has to go on is, is a quiet strength, the quiet strength of a transformed life. So think about this. Peter's writing to a culture that opposes Christianity. Even the government is willing to use Christians as a scapegoat and persecutes the Christians. They're, they're hated. They're, they're held in suspicion. And now you come home and say, I'm one of them. Like, that, that's, the, that's the scenario that's going on here. Now you're living with this person who says that I'm a believer. I'm one of those Christians that we've been ridiculing all this time. And at that moment, it's more important for them to see how a Christian behaves than to hear what a Christian believes. They need to see something different. They've heard all about Christians. Now they need to see something I need to see something different. It's not saying that a wife can't share her her faith, but it is saying that the priority is to be placed on how she lives. The quiet strength of her life can be used to win her husband without a word. Even when the husband says, I don't want to hear that. 
I'm, I'm done hearing about that Jesus. I don't, don't talk to me about that Bible anymore. Even though he can shut off your words, he can't shut off your life. You're going to live a consistent life before him. So how can he be won over by what he sees? Three qualities of a wife's conduct. And as you can tell, we're not going to get to the rest of this passage, but three qualities of a wife's conduct. Number one, submissive behavior. Number two, chaste behavior. And number three, respectful behavior. We'll cover these quickly. Number one, her conduct is to be submissive. It would have been uh, expected, especially during this time, that a wife would worship the gods of her husband's. Actually, a, a Greek philosopher by the name of Plutarch said it's proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. For, for a wife to choose her own god independent of her husband would have been considered improper and unsubmissive. You know, that, that's unheard of that you choose your own god. Actually, I remember I had a, a friend whose wife became saved before he did, and she tried to tell him about God, and he says, I am your God. What are you talking about? I am your God. And it bothered him that there was an area of her life that was totally independent from him. But that's the truth. (laughs) That's the truth. Everybody, like I mentioned before, has to stand before God alone. I can't stand before God for my husband. I have to stand before God for myself. And there's no way to avoid that a believing wife, as a believing wife, Jesus Christ is now your Lord. And, and Jesus doesn't share that throne with anybody else, okay? We are to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and our relationship with Jesus takes priority over every other relationship. Luke 14, 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And when, when Jesus speaks about hate in this context, he's referring to ultimate devotion, that you've got to be committed to one and turn against the other. Like if you have to make a choice, you've got to choose one. You can't have two ultimates. You can't have two lords. You've got to choose one. And the place of ultimate devotion can only be occupied by the Lord. Luke 16 verse 13 says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You have to pick which one are you going to be devoted to. Who's going to be number one? When you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that question's already been answered. Jesus Christ is number one. He's number one. And our devotion to Jesus takes priority over every other relationship. And sometimes it may seem that the decisions that you make are expressing hatred towards somebody else. Even though it's not, it's not hatred. It's just that I've, I've got to make a choice and I have to choose the Lord. Even though it might seem like I'm, I'm turning against you, I'm offending you, but it, it's not against you, it's for him. I mean, even my own life I can't consider as dear to myself. Even turning against myself, denying myself to come to Christ. That's what we do when we come to Jesus Christ in salvation. But as long as the husband does not ask the wife to make a choice between her submission to the Lord and her submission to him, the wife should defer to his leadership and conduct herself in a submissive way. And it should be clear from the pattern of her life that the only time that she steps outside of her husband's authority is when it comes into conflict with her obedience to the Lord. And that's the same kind of submission that we found all throughout this passage. The same thing. Same thing with government, same thing with masters. It's, it's the same kind of submission. I'll submit as long as it doesn't go against 
my convictions, my biblical convictions? You're not telling me to do something that the Lord told me not to do? You're not forbidding me from doing something that the Lord told me to do? Like, as long as it doesn't come into conflict with that, we'll submit. But when it comes into conflict, I, I, I can't submit. I can't offer you that submission because there is one ultimate. There's one who is the Lord. Back in Daniel chapter 6, that's the kind of submission that uh, Daniel offered to the state. In Daniel 6, it says the commissioners, satraps, began trying to find an accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption insomuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Find something in the law. That's, that's the way that we can get him because he's not going to turn against the commands of his God. That's the kind of submission that we should have, that, that I will submit as long as it doesn't go against the laws of my God. Is that the kind of submissive attitude that you have? Is that the kind of conduct you put on display? The church father, St. Augustine, in his confessions, he praised his book, the confessions, he, he praised his mother for her submissive conduct. And he writes that, when his mother arrived at a marriageable age, she was given to a husband whom she served and busied herself to win to the Lord and preached to him by her behavior. And it was her behavior that made her beautiful, amiable, and admirable. And it amazed her friends that there was no domestic strife between them because he was known to be an angry man. But she conquered by her submission and persevered in meekness and knew how to hold her tongue which she often blamed the tongue for the strife that some of her friends endured. And towards the end of his life, Augustine says that she won her husband to the Lord. And those who knew his mother magnified and honored the Lord because they perceived that God was present in her heart. The only way that she could do that is that God was present there. She had the, 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 the gentle and quiet spirit that was precious in the sight of God. Is it clear that the, the Lord is present in your heart by your words, by your actions? Is it clear that when you're unable to submit that it's only because of your submission to God? Is your conduct like Daniel where his enemies could find no ground of accusation unless it was against the law of his God? That's the kind of quality that's precious in the sight of God. Number two, the godly wife's conduct is chaste or pure. Uh, it uses the Greek word hagnos, which is a form of the word hagias for, for holy. It's a word that could be used for ceremonial defilement, but in the New Testament, it often spoke of just freedom from the defilement of sin, and particularly the faithfulness that we should find within marriage, chaste. That's why Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he's speaking of an illustration of our devotion to Christ, and he says in 2 Corinthians 11, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin, a chaste virgin, referring to sexual purity. And that's how it was often used in the literature of the day. There should be a, a faithfulness and devotion in your marriage that's beyond reproach. And a godly wife will do all that she can to reassure her husband of her commitment to him and to him alone. And one of the ways that we seek to promote that kind of devotion uh, here at our church is through a healthy women's ministry. There, there's, there's no reason for the men in this church to be counseling ladies privately and personally when there are so many ladies who can do that, right? 
And I've heard of some of the most heinous sins committed when men violate these principles, particularly pastors who violate these principles. 2 Timothy 3.6 says, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. As, as leaders in the church, we need to stay away from these kinds of sins. And we need to make sure that we protect the ladies who are part of this congregation. Personal and private matters should be shared between an older and a younger lady. That's what Titus 2 says, right? It's Titus 2. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, and to be pure. That's what an older lady is to instruct a younger lady to do. And when we violate this kind of instruction, God's word is blasphemed. Younger women who might be struggling need to come to an older godly woman to come alongside of them. And we need more older godly women to come alongside of the ladies here in this church. And for you older ladies, don't just assume everything is okay with the younger ladies. Take, take the initiative. Go to them. Ask them. You know, how can I be praying for you? How, how are you struggling? What can I do for you? Out of love and concern, can I share something with you? You know, again, Augustine honored his mother because she had been the wife of one man. She was faithful in her marriage. It was evident that she was committed to her husband, even though he was an unbeliever. She was committed to that husband. And the ladies in here need to have that same kind of attitude. And finally, a godly woman was to be reverent in her behavior. Her conduct was to be respectful. And this definitely includes the way that she responds to her husband, uh, because it falls underneath this command to be submissive, the godly wife submits with respect. And we all know that submission can be given without respect. In other words, somebody can do what they're supposed to do, but without the right heart. You know, I, can, I can't remember where I heard the illustration, but it was of a, of a child that was being told to sit down. You know, sit down, sit down, sit down. And eventually he sat down and he says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You know, that's not the kind of submission that we're looking for, right? You know, on the inside, I'm rebelling, but, you know, I'll do it on the, on the outside. But that's what submission can often look like. We can resent submission. And often women can fearfully grab the steering wheel because they don't respect or trust the decisions that are being made by the husband. Again, Nancy DeMoss says this. She says, over the years, women have insisted to me that their husband's passivity has forced them to take over. I know what it is to be frustrated by apparent passivity on the part of some men, but as I have watched men and women interact and have evaluated the effect of my own reactions in these sorts of settings, I can't help but wonder to what extent we women have demotivated and emasculated the men around us by our quickness to take the reins rather than waiting on the Lord to move men to action. We can so easily strip men of the motivation to rise to the challenge and provide the necessary leadership to make matters worse, when they do take action, the women they look to for encouragement and affirmation correct them or tell them how they could have done it better. So there's a respect that should be given to the husband, a, a submission given to the husband. Even if you don't think that everything that he's doing is exactly right, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you, I'll submit. You're not telling me to sin. You're not telling me to violate my convictions. And even if the wheels fall off, we'll, well, the wheels will fall off and we'll be in here together, right? Like that, that's exactly what the Lord is calling for. Allow the man to lead. 
So there's a respect that should be given to the husband, but ultimately the godly wife respects her God, and that's what stands behind any respect given to the husband. The word for respect that's used back in 1 Peter chapter 3 is the word phobos, where we get our English word phobia from. And Peter's already exhorted us to, to fear the one who will impartially judge us, chapter 1, verse 17. Now, I want to be clear that the fear that's spoken of here is not a fear of condemnation. It's a fear before the Lord, but it's not a fear of condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it's a fear of standing before the Lord and being examined by the Lord on the final day. And when the Lord examines you, he wants to find what's precious in his sight, right? The Lord is making this evaluation. He's looking for what is precious, what's valuable. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Only what is valuable will last on the last day. And the Lord has already told us what's valuable. It's precious in his sight to have a submissive and godly attitude, to be gentle and have a quiet spirit. He's already told us what's valuable. That's what's going to last. Some Christians are going to be saved, but they'll smell like smoke at the end. There's a healthy fear that we should all have of coming before the Lord and meeting his evaluation. Back in 1 Peter 2, 17, Peter separated the honor that only belongs to God. There's a fear that only belongs to God. So a woman submits to her husband in respect, but out of ultimate fear of God, which means that she will not sin in order to keep her husband happy. The submission that she gives to her husband is not the kind of fear that she gives to the Lord. And her greatest beauty is the beauty of the hidden person, the person in the heart, gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And we'll get more to to that next week. But this week, as I was listening to some of the stories about Janice, it just struck me that the Janice is just a wonderful example of this kind of woman, the quiet strength and hidden beauty. Janice and Kevin were married on April 3rd, 1981, but it wasn't until the year 1983 that Janice came to know the Lord two years after their marriage. Her mother had recently given her life to Christ and began sharing with her daughter, Janice, who also gave her life to Christ, and they began attending church together. And she came home, and she was converted, and at the time, Kevin was not. But at the beginning of her conversion, Kevin didn't want any part of the Christianity that Janice had, and both Kevin and Janice grew up in a Catholic church where the gospel wasn't taught. They were married as unbelievers, and Kevin definitely wasn't expecting in two years that his wife would be a Bible believer, you know, teaching the gospel. But as Kevin shared with me, he said Janice wasn't pushy about it. She shared with him. She invited him to church. She faithfully listened to Christian radio around the house, and Kevin said as uh, that if she was listening to Christian radio and Kevin showed up, that she'd just turn up the volume just a little bit, just a little bit more. Make sure that, uh, that Kevin could, uh, could hear it. You know, Kevin talked about hearing many uh, unshackled programs. You know, the, they had the organ. Listen to many unshackled programs and testimonies of people who came to know the Lord. And it was about a year later when Kevin was attending a funeral for a coworker that the Lord finally opened up his eyes and brought him new life. But what kind of idea would Kevin have had of Christianity if following her conversion, Janice became unsubmissive, disrespectful, impure, 
God could have still saved Kevin, but it would have been in spite of his wife's witness, instead of in part because of his wife's witness. And in part of her testimony was being a faithful and submissive wife, submissive to her own husband, so that even if he was disobedient to the word, he was won without a word by the behavior of his wife as he observed her chaste and respectful behavior. And that's the testimony of Janice Lee. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, uh, so much for uh, this time that we're able to look to your word. And uh, Father, we thank you for the life of of Janice and that uh, she was a submissive wife, that she was a faithful wife, that she was a chaste wife, that she was respectful. And Father, that in part because of her testimony and not being pushy, but living out her Christian testimony before her husband, that eventually her husband was one to the Lord, and that he can look back in his own testimony and see that there was a faithful wife who stood behind him. My Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation that you've given to my brother, and we thank you for the gift of salvation that you've given to Janice that is hers right now as an eternal possession. Father, we can't thank you enough for that. And Father, we look forward to seeing her one day, and we know that her life was precious in your sight. Thank you for the preciousness of that life that we were able to witness and that you've given as a gift to Kevin. My Father, we give you all praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.